If you're following um, in your booklets, it's printed, the passage is printed out for you. If you um, want to follow it in your Bibles, it's on page 31 of the Bibles in the pews. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give you give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also. 
and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he, walked, he worked for Laban another seven years. Thank you, Jane. And good evening, everyone. It is wonderful to be with you. My name is Jack, if we haven't met. It's been very kind of you to finally turn up the weather for this Australian this weekend. Feeling right at home, so thank you for that. As we start tonight, I want to ask you a question, and that is, what is the worst night's sleep that you have ever had? Maybe it was last night as the the sweltering summer began and the, the flannelette sheets are still on, took you by surprise. I distinctly remember back when I was a teenager, my old church back in Sydney, where I grew up, one year our youth group went out to the big youth conference out in the mountains, a couple of hours out of Sydney, right at the start of winter. Back then I didn't know what cold was yet, compared to the winter I've had just this year, but certainly at that point, as cold as I'd ever been, the only accommodation left for youth camp that year was the camping option. We were a little late booking the tickets. So there we were, our flimsy tent pitched on gravel, We youth boys packed in like sardines, no room to move. If you could have moved, you would have just been rolling from having the stick poking you on one side to the pebble in the other. It was a tough sleep. But the person in our camp who was the hardest done by, of course, was one of our leaders who was the hapless victim of the classic who took my sleeping bag prank. If that sounds rough, then tonight as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, here we come to Jacob on the roughest night of his life. He has run away from his family, he is fleeing from his older brother Esau who wants him dead, and he lays down in the open countryside with nothing and no one except a rock for a pillow. It is a gripping tale, it's a great story in its own right that we come to tonight, but it's also a story that is crucial for us as God's people. This story takes us deeper into who our God is, what he is like. We're going to see how he is both the God who is with his people and he is the God who disciplines his people. If it sounds challenging to imagine how those two things can fit together, then read on. We're going to wrestle with it together tonight. This is a story that unfolds in three scenes. You can kind of see them set out in the three headings if you have the the Bible open there at Genesis 28 and 29. Let's get into the first one. In Genesis 28 from verse 10, scene one, we see how Jacob, the deceiver, receives a dream, and here we learn how the Lord is present. Jacob is the deceiver. His very name in Hebrew means he grasps or he cheats or he deceives. And in the passage before our one tonight, if you are here last time, Genesis 27, you would have seen the deceiver in his element. Jacob dresses up as his older brother Esau. He goes in to deceive his poor old blind father Isaac and rips Esau's blessing away from him. When Esau found out, he was so angry, he wanted Jacob dead. And as I said, now Genesis 28, we see Jacob fleeing for his life. He's left behind the family that he has torn apart. He has started this precarious 500-mile solo journey north to seek refuge with his uncle, Laban. Jacob's all alone. He's got no wife. He's got no children to keep this promised family going. Jacob has nothing to his name except, as I mentioned, The rock under his head. Verse 11, he lies down with a rock for a pillow. At this point, you could say Jacob has basically hit rock bottom. This is his absolute low point. And so what happens next is astonishing. 
in this mysterious way of reversal that is so often God's way in our world, what happens next is one of the high points of Jacob's life. Verse 12, Jacob dreams about this flight of stairs going up into the sky. This is, of course, where we get our phrases like Jacob's ladder and stairway to heaven for all you rockers out there. Jacob sees God's angels ascending and descending on this giant staircase, connecting the earth where he stands to heaven above. And at the very top stands Almighty God himself. From verse 18, this God makes promises to Jacob, the the promises that he's first made to his grandfather Abraham. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through your offspring. Land, descendants, blessing, these astonishing promises of God passed on to Jacob as the next one in the line. But even more than that, God promises to be Jacob's God. Verse 15, he says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now those promises are astonishing when we remember just who it is that God is talking to. This is Jacob. As far as the text tells us, he has never shown any interest in God before in his life. He has lied and cheated and destroyed his family the whole way along. But here God shows up with no word of rebuke to him. Just promises. In verse 16, we see how Jacob responds to this word that God has given. He wakes up with surely the worst neck pain imaginable. And this dream has blown his mind. He realizes he has been in the presence of God. It's as if God has invited Jacob into his own house. That's why he names this place Bethel, the house of God. Jacob responds with reverence and awe and still a little bit of hesitation. As Jacob makes his vow to God, you can tell he's still a little bit undecided about who this God is. Verse 20, Jacob says, if God will be with me, if. You can see how deep Jacob's scheming nature runs. That even when he is confronted by God himself, Jacob even then is bold enough to propose a deal. If God will watch over me, if the Lord will actually come good on these promises, then you will be my God. Jacob is not all in with God just yet. He wants proof before he bows the knee to God as his God. In short, Jacob still has a long way to go. He is well and truly a work in progress, as we are going to keep seeing throughout this series in Genesis. And that makes it all the more astonishing that God appeared to him at all. That vision of the stairway is significant for us. Jacob is shown something that is important for us to see too. What God shows us is that he doesn't want to be distant. God bridges that gulf that divides heaven and earth and brings the stairway down. God says, I am accessible. I want you to come to me. I want you to know me. The stairway says that this is a God who is determined to make a way for sinful people like Jacob to approach him. And many, many years on, much further into the story of the Bible, this image will be picked up again by none other than the Lord Jesus, who calls to mind that picture of the stairway to tell us something about him. In John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus tells his disciples, 
Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The angels ascending and descending, that's the language of Genesis 28. But this time, not on the stairway, Jesus says, you'll see the angels going up and down on me. In other words, Jesus claims to be the stairway to heaven. Jesus says, I am the bridge between heaven and earth. God is determined to make a way for sinful people to come to him, and Jesus is that way. The access to God that Jacob needed is what we get to hear about in Jesus. He is the only way to God. It may be that you are here tonight, and if you're honest with yourself, you know that you don't know Jesus. Maybe that's because this is all still new and you're starting to explore. It's wonderful to have you here if that's you. Maybe you've been in church for years and you know all sorts of things about Jesus. But in your hearts of hearts, you know that you don't know him. You don't yet trust him, love him. If that is you, then Jesus' word for you today is that he wants you to know him. He's the only way that any of us can get to God and be saved. There is so much more to say here, but if you want to find out more about Jesus, then talk to the person who brought you along tonight. Come and talk to me. I'd love to to chat to you about him and, and help you get to know him. Pick up a Bible. Start reading Mark's gospel for yourself. Start finding out. Because Jesus knows who you are, and he's calling you to know him. Because he is the only stairway to God for sinners like Jacob, like you and me. Well, that is the first scene of our passage. The deceiver receives a dream, and we've seen how God promises to be present with his people. And surely this is the high point now, right? Now that God has personally promised to be with Jacob, I'm not going to leave you. Surely it is all smooth sailing from here. I mean, if God is for you, who can be against you? And we're going to see there's still a little more to say. In our second and third scenes, we see how the deceiver is received and then himself deceived. And here we learn about our Lord's discipline. The start of Genesis 29, Jacob comes to the end of his long journey and things start off quite nicely. He heads to the local well, meets the local shepherds, finds out that his uncle Laban is alive and well. So far, so good. Escape plan is, is coming to fruition. And then Genesis 29, verse 9, who should arrive next at the well but Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel? You know, boy meets girl at the local watering hole. We all know where this is going. For Jacob, it is love at first sight. They have a lot in common. He's a shepherd. She's a shepherd. Her name, Rachel, even means sheep. I mean, it just looks like a match made in heaven. There's this big rock covering the well, which normally takes four guys to lift and Jacob sees his chance to impress, so verse 10, he just grabs it himself, one man, and just shoves the huge rock out of the way. And in verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. It always makes me think, wow, Jacob, way to play it cool on the first date. Well, it's more like Jacob gives Rachel the peck on the cheek and and weeps because he's home. He's found his kin. He's found safety. Rachel runs home to get her dad, Laban. He welcomes Jacob in, gives him a big kiss too. And scene two ends as Laban receives Jacob into his home. The long journey is over. Jacob has found safety. 
He has met the woman who he's surely, it's in the bag. They're going to get married. Everything's looking good. And interestingly, Jacob still has no word of thanks or praise to the God who has promised to be with him on this journey. Jacob still seems to be relying entirely on his own strength. How's that going to turn out for him? In our third scene, we start with Jacob striking a bargain with his uncle Laban. Jacob always eager to make a deal. Verse 18, Jacob says he'll give up seven years of his life slaving away as a shepherd for Laban. But he says that is a a small price to pay. Just a few days it'll feel like to get to marry the woman of his dreams. We flash forward, verse 21, the seven years are done. Jacob calls on Laban to keep his end of the bargain. It is time to marry Rachel. The wedding day approaches, the dress has been made, the bells are ringing. But as Laban pulls together a wedding reception for Jacob, he's also planning a wedding deception on Jacob. Verse 23, when evening came, Laban took his other daughter, Leah. Well read, Jan, you really helped us see that, didn't we? Leah is brought to Jacob and Jacob made love to her, the wrong daughter. Not beautiful Rachel, who Jacob loved, but her older sister, Leah. It just sounds crazy to us. How could Jacob have not noticed that he was marrying the wrong woman? It's astonishing what a crafty uncle can get away with, with a wedding veil and a dark tent and maybe a few glasses of wine. Jacob has no idea what has happened until he wakes up the next morning. Verse 25, morning came and there's Leah. Leah. We get to see the moment from Jacob's point of view. It's like he's waking up drowsily the day after his wedding, full of joy, finally married to the woman of his dreams. And as his eyes slowly come into focus, he realizes it's a different pair of eyes staring back at him. And Jacob is furious with Laban. Verse 25, he yells, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? He says. And in that last little phrase is the clue for us that finally helps us see what this whole story is all about. Because that word deceived is the same word that Isaac used, Isaac his father used back in Genesis 27 to describe what Jacob did to him when he stole Esau's blessing. Just as Jacob deceived his father being a different son to the one Isaac asked for, So now Laban deceives Jacob. He turns it back on him by giving him a different daughter to the one he had asked for. There's all sorts of clues in this chapter that show us this is the the reversal. This is the old switcheroo happening, coming back on Jacob. Isaac's blessing said that nations and peoples would serve Jacob. And here it's Jacob who's been forced to serve Laban. Jacob, the younger brother, took the place of his firstborn Esau, But Laban turns it back on him and puts the firstborn Leah in place of the younger Rachel. Jacob may well be the deceiver by name, but he has been completely outdone here by his deceptive uncle. It's Laban who pulls a Jacob on Jacob. So this great reversal, what is that meant to teach us as God's people? Is it perhaps a warning? Don't be like Jacob because your sin will find you out. It'll come back to bite you. What goes around comes around. It's... Karma, maybe? There's something more going on here than that. We need to remember what we saw at the start, at Bethel. God promised he would be with Jacob. God promised he would watch over Jacob. And yet, I don't know if you noticed, but God isn't mentioned at all in scenes 2 and 3 of our passage. 
almost seems as if God is entirely absent. But scene one assures us God is there. God promised he was there in Haran with Jacob. He could have stepped in and protected Jacob from Laban's deceitful schemes, and he didn't. God's presence is no guarantee that things will be easy, smooth sailing. What we see is how God uses Laban to give Jacob a taste of his own medicine. Laban is God's chosen instrument to teach Jacob that he hasn't gotten away with deceiving his father. It's not that God's being vindictive and just punishing Jacob for the sake of it. He said in 28 verse 15, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What I've promised you. All of this is part of God's promises being worked out in Jacob's life. This is pain with a purpose. This is God's discipline at work. God brings Jacob down to humble him, to make him realize just how serious his deceiving ways are. It remains to be seen in the weeks ahead how exactly God will change and grow and even bless Jacob through what he experiences here. But this episode teaches us that our holy God is committed to being present with sinful people and yet he will not let us just continue in our sins as we are. Sometimes the God who is with us will bring the consequences of our sin back on us, not out of spite, but to discipline us. Sometimes we can be so stubborn and proud that hardship is the only thing in the end that will humble us and teach us that God is in control and we are not. That can be pretty unsettling for us to hear. We don't want to think of God as the one disciplining us. It can sound cruel. But if we think a little deeper, we realize that that's not God being cruel, but kind. Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. Hebrews getting towards the end of the New Testament. It's on page 1210 in our Pew Bibles. 1211, sorry. The writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 5, he says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Far from an act of cruelty, God's discipline is an act of his love. It's certainly not a soft and gooey sort of love at this point. This is a, a tough love, a severe love. And it's countercultural in our day to say it, but love doesn't always mean treating people the way they want to be treated. God loves Jacob, so he treats him the way that he needs to be treated if he is going to change. It's not what our world thinks about love, but deep down, we know that that's how love works at some level because God gives us a picture of it in human parenting, as the writer to the Hebrews says. My elder two children, Oscar and Heidi, are five and three, and if they refuse to go to bath time or if they lash out and hurt their little brother Max, I will gently but firmly give them a word of correction 
or go and put them in their room to calm down or put them to bed without their nightly board game or whatever else it is they're looking forward to. And as a dad, I do those things not because I hate them, not out of spite, not because I really enjoy making them suffer. I do it out of love. I want them to learn what is right and appropriate. I want them to learn to to listen the first time. I want want them to learn that actions have consequences. All of those things are not because kids get to just do whatever they want, to to do that would be unloving. That would mean I don't want what is best for them. Parents discipline their children because they love them. And it is the same with our Father in heaven. When we face setbacks and hard times in our life, we should be open to the possibility that God is disciplining us as he disciplined Jacob. There may not be, that that's what's going on. There are all sorts of things the Bible says about suffering. Some suffering has nothing to do with discipline. And I'm not God, and neither are you. We don't know exactly what God is doing or why he brings about our circumstances. But we can know that sometimes what God is doing is chastening us, that we might grow. That in the, the crucible of hardship, we might be refined and made more like our big brother Jesus, who we aspire to grow up to be like. I remember a dear fellow believer back home telling me how losing his job was exactly the thing that he needed to expose his arrogance, his his self-reliance in being able to provide for himself. Looking back, he knew it was what he needed to help him trust that God would provide. Or another good friend whose experience of long-term bed-ridden illness was exactly what he needed to show him that his identity had been in all the things that he knew he could do. And not being able to do those things drove him back to one of the most important things that anybody can do. Prayer. We will not always know why we suffer. But hard times can be this time for us to ask questions and examine ourselves Is God bringing me low to call me to repent of some sin that I have not let go of? How is he growing me to be more like his son through this? Let us ask ourselves all those questions and then entrust ourselves to God. To the God who we've met in these pages tonight, the God of Bethel, the God who has made a stairway for us to be present with him in the Lord Jesus. The God who is present with us, even to discipline us, not because he is cruel, but because he is kind. The God who is present is the God who chastens. So do not despise the Lord's discipline. He disciplines you because he loves you. And in the midst of it all, he is always with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would press on our hearts what Jacob learned that night at Bethel, that you have promised to be present with us and that you will never forsake us. Lord, we pray that you would make us more like your son, even at cost to us. We pray that you would help us to grow, even if it takes us being humbled and brought low, just as Jacob was. And when you do that, we pray that you would help us not to turn our backs on you, but to know that you are our Father and that you love us 
and that you work all things for our good, that we might let go of our pride, that we might become more like our Lord who has loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.